morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Wednesday, September the 15th, and we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles with Leviticus chapter 2. It was such a joy to, one, get a great introduction from Dr. John Kleinig on Monday. Yesterday, we continued on with the burnt offerings as we clearly saw how this pointed to Christ. And today, we kind of take a a little bit of a move that I'm not always 100% sure how this all connects. And hopefully today, we will learn more with the grain offerings. It looks like a good bakery. Some flour, some oil, some bread that was baked. The priests eat it. Sounds great. But what does this mean for them? And what does it mean for us as we see Jesus in the text? The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends from Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. And today I just received an email from Lutheran Heritage Foundation of one of the highlights of their work is that they have interpreted uh, the book Lutheran Book of Prayer and the small catechism into the language of Dari, which also can be read by people with Farsi for many of the Afghan refugees. So many of the children who are coming to America or other parts of English-speaking nations, they are receiving this Lutheran Book of Prayer and the Small Catechism. So like I said, look look up their work because here are people coming in need and they're receiving the gift of Christ. So continue to support their work as we thank them for supporting ours. Helping us to be strengthened by God's word this morning, we have the joy of having with us Dr. Adam Kuntz, of Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Hi, it's great to be with you. I just want to make sure I said that right. Kuntz? Yeah, Kuntz, you got it. All right, very good. Well, Dr. Kuntz, you've been on a number of programs here on KFUO and been a blessing to all of us, but this is our first time together on Thy Strong Word. So can you introduce yourself, your family, and your service at Concordia Theological Seminary? Sure. I am a native of uh, Pennsylvania, and that's also where my first parish was before I was here at the seminary. I've been here, this is now my third year, uh, and my wife, uh, Jen, who's a native of Minnesota, we have seven children. (laughs) Now, now I always do this, Dr. Kuntz, is the Kevin Bacon game. Um, what, how many degrees of separation is from the state of Minnesota? So I have to ask this. My listeners know this. Where is your wife from? Uh, my Minnesota. wife is from, she's from Spring Valley, south of Rochester. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm in central Minnesota, so greet her as a fellow Minnesotan, and what a joy that is. So continue <laughs> on. Tell us about your service. What do you do at Concordia Theological Seminary? Yeah, I teach New Testament, so that is generally courses in the Gospels and Paul's epistles, as well as directing field education, which is where we send out students to congregations in the area to learn how to conduct a service, to learn how to preach, uh, all the sort of practical stuff that's going to be very helpful to them. 
Well, thank you for um, giving us that update and also for your service to the church, not only in Fort Wayne, but around the world as you form servants in the name of Christ. So a reminder to our listeners, too, to pray for our seminaries as they train pastors, excuse me, form pastors to serve here and around the world, deaconesses and other leaders in the church. So continue to pray for Dr. Kuntz and also his family and the faculty at that at that seminary. So, Pastor, the tradition here in this program is that our guest begins us in prayer and ask for the Lord's blessings. Can you do that for us today? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift that you have given us of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask that as with your Old Testament people, we bring our gifts and offerings, that they may be a fragrant sacrifice and aroma, as St. Paul has said, pleasing to you for the sake of Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Reminder to your listeners, if you have any questions concerning Leviticus, it can be for our text today, or anything to do with Leviticus, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, or call us, 314-821-0850, 314-821-0850. Dr. Kuntz is a, is, a, is a wonderful theologian, and he'll be able to answer almost every question you have, so call in today so he can be able to answer that for us today as well. So, Dr. Kuntz, as we look at Leviticus, Dr. Kleinig started very well on Monday when he said these words, why study such a weird book as Leviticus? So my question to you to start our time today, um, we're looking at offerings and it can get kind of weird. Can you tell us about the offerings and maybe some distinctions from the burnt offering to what we study today in the grain offering? Yeah, the offerings generally are describing for you what happens when Israel's daily life, when the life of the people of God, who in this time and place are generally farmers of some kind, living on land, given them as a gift by the Lord, what happens when that is somehow taken up into the life of God and how he relates through the tabernacle to his people? So, it, it is weird in the sense that it's culturally foreign and the materials that are being discussed, dead animals, grain, frankincense, some of that is unfamiliar to most of us. But all of it is very simply the way that God desires to relate to his people through the things that surround them in their daily life. And then those things are going to be connected to his life, which has given them through the tabernacle, through the way that especially his priests meet with him there. And the, the difference being in today's reading simply that rather than talking about sacrifices that are offered fairly rarely in the case of burnt offerings, large, expensive sacrifices, your most precious animals, grain offerings are much more regular, some of them happening every so often, but the ones that are covered here in chapter two happening very frequently and in connection very often in scripture with other offerings. So what you're especially getting in chapter two are offerings that are very much everyday kind of things. And so as we think about that, especially as we go on in this hour, we'll be able to think about very everyday kind of things because those are the types of offerings being discussed here in chapter two. 
What's interesting to me is how busy these priests would have had to be, because obviously to have a burnt offering, to peace offering, um, to the sin offerings, that would be a lot of work. But as you said, and I and I really like that insight because it's very confusing to look at Leviticus and understand how often did these happen. Um, so they were very busy, especially with these on a daily basis. So can you give us a, a um, uh, I guess, a, I don't know. Do, I don't know about the time schedule of a priest or something, but it, it just seems almost impossible to fulfill. So is this something that happened then and continued on and I guess still kind of continues today? I mean, how would you describe that historically of, of okay, this is what it says, but did it actually happen? <laughs> or how right, often? because right because the law is something that prescribes, but then we always have to ask ourselves, did Israel do what was prescribed? And in the case of the grain offerings, it's fairly certain from scripture and just from probability that they did happen because elsewhere in scripture, you have many mentions of grain offerings or of offerings that as ours do in today's text require salt to go with them or require frankincense to be offered with them. So we have a sense that these are, these are everyday things. They're not expensive. And also, yeah, the priests have to be really busy, but the priests are also eating the food that they do receive from these offerings. So this is something that the priest wants to happen regularly. So um, it seems in all likelihood that these, these were happening very, very often, so often that when uh, the, the prophets especially condemn some of Israel's sacrifices, they'll say that your grain offerings or your incense was not the point. That is, I want a heart that is contrite, says the Lord. But that mm. tells you how often they are offering grain offerings and, and incense along with them. Now, one of the questions I have with that is you have what we would consider to be relatively, it's hard for us to imagine this because I go to the grocery store, buy some flour. I go to the grocery store, get some vegetable oil. I go to, it's a little bit harder, but I can get some frankincense, right? I can get some salt (laughs) just down the aisle and all of that. But how difficult was it for them to get these items? You said it's more common, but it seems like it still wouldn't be easy. And at the same time, how did they gather it? Or what what are your thoughts on that? Or do you find anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, common does not mean easy because the two <laughs> products, the two products that would come from Israel would be uh, the grain and the oil produced from je- probably wheat uh, and then olives, respectively. And so that has to be raised, that has to be crushed, that has to be gathered. And in the case of the grain, it has to be sifted extensively to get the kind of flour that the Lord is talking about in Leviticus 2. The thing that is not common nor easy to acquire, but it does not go with all the grain offerings. It goes with the offering of raw grain at the very beginning of our chapter is the incense, because that is going to come from a kind of a tree that largely only grows in the horn of Africa. So one thing you can see is that they're presuming that there's some amount of trade that will allow some access to incense, which will be used sometimes for grain offerings, but not, I think, often, because all the baked offerings are set up as not requiring the same amount or possibly even any uh, incense. 
All right. Well, those those are the big questions that I had to start us off. Dr. Kuntz, is there anything else you want to highlight that might help us as we study this chapter? Yeah, I think just to understand the depth of the Lord's care, that he doesn't want even the most common or everyday, even pedestrian parts of life to be excluded from how he relates to his people. There's something very beautiful in his desire to reveal through Moses a way to talk about these very basic things of life so important to a farming people and to take those things into relationship with him, say that they also come as a gift from him, no matter how common they might be. So let's dig in with those uh, with that lens to understand even more the depth of God's care for his people. So let us begin verses 1 through 3, and we'll break down the text and to see Christ. Reminder to our listeners, we are reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, Leviticus chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So, Dr. Kuntz, there's a number of uh, basic instructions. What do you want to highlight? Something to notice is that there is work together by both the Israelite and also by the priest. Hmm. So the Israelite is going to prepare the elements and bring them to the priest, and then the priest will offer them. Also to notice that not everything of the three elements, flour, oil, and incense, not everything of the flour and the oil is consumed, but instead is taken what's called in our translation, a memorial portion, some part of the flour and oil. And all of the incense is put together with those memorial portions of flour and oil by the priest as the offering. The rest of the flour and oil go to support the priests of Israel. And this has to do with the fact that although land is given to the other tribes, Levi Levi does not have a distinct territory, the priestly tribe. And so his portion is not secured in the same way in Israel as is everyone else's. But those who are not busy with the work of the temple, when they bring their offering, support those who are busy with the work of the temple by giving them really most of the flour and the oil in this case. So this is, I grew up in a, a, a pastor's home. I, my dad's a pastor. And so there were times where people would show up with a whole bunch of ground beef uh, <laughs> that they had from their quarter cow that they bought. And they would show up at our house with this beef. Is it kind of something like that? Or how would you, would there be a connection that we can make for today? Oh, yeah, there's a, it's a lot like that. And you see St. Paul speaking this way when he even looks at the animals involved in the harvest and derives from that the idea that you should pay those who work full time in the Lord's service, which is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. 
That is that when someone is engaged in work on behalf of all of God's people, the one who is not engaged in that work full-time in the same way should share what he has to support that work, which is so vital to God's people. In this case, it's the temple service. In New Testament times, it's the proclamation of the word. But the principle is the same. And there are really often, you know, beautiful stories that that pretty much any pastor could tell about things like this. Uh, Back in frontier Mm. days, they would sometimes, you know, they would have a litter of pigs and they would say that pig is the pastor's pig. So when all Mm. the pigs are slaughtered, everything from that pig goes to support the pastor and his family. Did you ever receive a pig when you were a pastor in Pennsylvania? <laughs> uh, I, I received, I think, beef, uh, and there is, there is a wonderful man who gives us beef and pork now, but I think Pennsylvania, I never received a pig. Gotcha, gotcha. That, that, yeah. that is a, it's a great, great thing. Can you imagine nowadays, especially in, I live more of a suburban type of town, if someone showed up at my house with a pig, I don't think that it would be lawful, let alone beneficial for me. But the kids might like it, but it wouldn't be good. So anyways, right. one question that I do have is it's interesting that you have the fine flour and oil. And as you said, there's a separation of the frankincense. Hard to get, but, you know, obviously there was some kind of trade. But it seems like an, a weird thing to add to bread. Any insight on why that would be added in this, uh, I guess you say, formula or recipe for this particular offering? Yeah. Practically, it's going to cover the kind of acrid, harsh smell of the raw flour just being burnt. Mm. Symbolically, it provides an extra sense of sacrifice on the part of the one bringing the offering because he has to go to the extra work of getting the incense and and paying for that. So it's something, there's something especially extravagant about this particular grain offering that won't be the case with the different baked kind of offerings in the rest of the chapter. And that's interesting too. That's something when we, when I see fine flour and oil, I think of going to Panera Right. I think, wow, you walk in there, just this wonderful smell. But what you're telling me and and based on the text, like you said, it probably wouldn't have smelled that good whatsoever. No. Right. Because (laughs) it's not really baking. It's just being burnt. It's being Uh incinerated is the the word that Dr. Kleinig likes to use for this kind of thing. So it doesn't smell good. (laughs) <laughs> gotcha. That, that's very insightful because it also brings us back to the sacrifices of the animals that often we don't think through the lens. And we don't think that way with either when we buy our meat at the grocery store or our member brings meat over to our home is we don't think about the messiness that went into that butchering. The same way here in the, in the sacrifices, we don't think about the blood that they were sprawling everywhere and gathering next to the altar. We don't think about the messiness of that, let alone how they cleaned it after. Um, but all of the messiness that went into that, unless we really stop and think through the process, we don't realize how messy this is, which, as one pastor told me, this reminds us of how messy uh, Christ's death and his death would have been, that it wasn't clean and neat, but yet it was needed obviously for our salvation. Same here. It was not clean and neat, but it showed us a need to be holy, as Dr. Kleining tells us often. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think when you consider that these things are not in themselves significant to us, 
one way to get into the the sense of how the, how much this would have mattered is to consider what the person is actually bringing, which is some portion of something he has worked all year to provide. You know, so the earliest that he could bring something like this would be at the time of Pentecost, when in biblical Israel the grain harvest is ready to go. So he's worked this much, and now it has to be thrown on the altar in this extravagant way with this other expensive material he has to purchase in incense. And it feels like a waste, but Mm -hmm. it is an acknowledgement, not a waste, but an acknowledgement of the fact that he is really, as it were, paying rent to the true owner of the land and the giver of the gifts, who is the Lord. And so there is something highly significant in taking something for which you have worked so hard, and rather than consuming all of it yourself, giving it to the Lord and to those who minister in his service. And that's a good reminder for us, too, that it's like taking, let's just throw something out there, like half of our salary and just put it at an altar and say, here it is. Um, I had to work half the year for this. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but it definitely is something that he or they would have felt <laughs> the sacrifice that went into this. So it is yeah. it required faith definitely to do that. Um, one last question, Dr. Coons, as we look at these first three verses, is that they had to eat. They didn't have to, but they were able to eat this offering, the priests. Now, it seems to me that there was, I read something about that they had to eat this in a certain place. Any Any thoughts on that and why they had to eat it in a certain place? Yeah, they have to eat it near the Lord's tabernacle. So this will, once the temple is built, this will be formalized as the court of the priests into which only priests enter. And the reason that they have to eat it nearby is because the food is truly the Lord's. So when you see adjectives like holy or most holy, which in in Hebrew is always holy of holies, that's, that's the way they like to say most or best or highest, king of kings, lord of lords, holy of holies. They have to eat it there because the food is the Lord's. It's actually his. So this, the equivalent of the priest taking the food and just walking off home and then eating it later would be as if you went to someone's house for dinner and you said, okay, thanks, and you treated it like it was takeout. It would be very strange. They invited you over. It's their food that you're eating. And so it's the Lord's food. It's his, but he is not like the pagan gods in all the nations around Israel. He's not hungry. He's not in need, right? Psalm 50, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He doesn't need something, but he delights to have his priests eat his food in his presence. He loves to be a host in that way. So they're showing deference to their host by eating where he is in the tent of meeting. And that's a great, a great analogy to point to is that idea of the Lord has prepared this meal and then therefore you are to eat this, therefore, in the holy place and to bring it into our lives where, you know, if you go to someone's house, like you said, they, they, they sit you down you sit down and they put it on your plate and then you just pick it up and leave. 
Um, it's kind of like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go to my, I'm gonna go to the baseball game and and eat this while I'm watching that, or even to the point where you go and you take it, then you go sit at the at the 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 sofa and watch a football game or something. There's something that is that communal aspect, and I feel like, and maybe we want to touch on this a little bit before our break, is this connects us to another meal that is quite holy. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, when you think about the Lord's Supper as not just not just being a ritual that you're familiar with, but as actually being the Lord's food, which is the way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, it's his table. Then his instructions for how it should be carried out or the sense of holiness uh, and of occasion and of what is fitting and proper or orderly in 1 Corinthians type words, those things all stem from the fact that the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ. They are his presence and they are his food to give out. So in that sense, that's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the ministers of God stewards. They're serving the host's things. And so we have to behave and think of the occasion and understand ourselves in terms of the fact that the food, the bread, the wine, the body, the blood, those are his. Those are not ours. They're his to give out. And he is the true host at every Lord's Supper. And once again, we often would call it Holy Communion. And so that's a good reminder for us. And we will continue to jump on that or to interpret that throughout our time. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Leviticus chapter 2 with Dr. Adam Kuntz, and we'll be right back. our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. And welcome back. We are studying Leviticus chapter 2 with Dr. Adam Kuntz from Concordia Theological Seminary. Now, Dr. Kuntz, I think we should keep moving forward here. I want to go verses 4 through 10, and then I have a question that I received in an email concerning the grain offering. So let's continue in the text, 4 through 10. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering... It shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. 
and the priest shall take from take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Now, actually, two questions. One just came in uh, to me. And one of the questions that one of our listeners has is the question of um, how could something that burns uh, be pleasing to the Lord? How would you describe that to someone when they ask? I think what is what is pleasing to the Lord and notice that with the raw grain, there's the incense. So that's obviously a nice smell. And then with the burnt, with the baked things that you just read, that also is going to have a different smell than the raw grain. But I think what is ultimately pleasing here, and you really need to rely, especially on the prophets and the Psalms critique of hypocritical sacrifices, especially, is that the Lord's delight is that his people bring the offerings not the objective worth of a little bit of grain with some oil or the objectively wonderful smell of baked bread burning up now. The Mm. issue is always that his people are with him, that they understand that what they do have is a gift of which they are rendering back some and acknowledging that gift of everything in bringing the offering. So I think what is ultimately pleasing here is the contrite heart and the humble spirit bringing the offering. But along with that, there is a a smell uh, to at least some of the offerings that is not entirely horrible. But I think the focus (laughs) is always on is always on the fact of the offering. And and here's the and here's the next part of that question is Mm This one is a lot less clear of the purpose. Now, we do see one of the purposes of, uh, of to, to feed the priest. But is there, and, and then like you just mentioned, there's a faith component that, that they give the sacrifice in faith to the Lord. But it doesn't quite have that obvious, like, this is for the sake of forgiveness. How would you describe to someone the purpose of the grain offering? Yeah, some of the offerings are for the sake of forgiveness, and they really show us something very much more like our understanding of communion with God. That is, God and man can be next to each other and alive with each other, and man can live. And we see that especially with with burnt offerings. But the grain offering is something a little bit different in that it does not ensure communion or peace or forgiveness, but it ensures that the one who brings the offering continues to understand that day by day, everything that he has, all of that real estate, which will be outlined at the second half of the book of Joshua, all of that is the Lord's gift. All his work, everything that has come about from it, all of it, even the most basic things are his gift. So some of the offerings ensure peace, forgiveness, climactically in the middle of Leviticus, atonement for sin for all. But the grain offerings are an acknowledgement that what they have day by day is a gift. So if you want to think of Leviticus 2 as sort of your, your Monday through Saturday understanding of life with God, 
in addition to those climactic Sundays where you feast on the atoning sacrifice of Christ, Leviticus 2 is your Monday through Saturday understanding that everything in your life, the very basic things of it, are his gift, and you're acknowledging those things. And that's very helpful because we live, especially those who are um, not in church work, live Monday through Saturday. You know, that's that's their lives. They they go to work. They're taking care of their families. They're receiving the bills in the mail by email. They're trying to pay their bills. They're, all of this, they're trying to find a way to be able to trust the Lord throughout all of that. So this is... Yeah, that's very helpful for me, especially to to hear that because it is the grain offering was a proof that, as it says on um, on on the mountain, the Lord will provide for you know Isaac and for Abraham that the Lord will provide, and so He's proving right. that through this as a people gave in faith uh, to the right. Lord. So, Doctor Kuntz, anything else four through ten that you want to highlight before we move on? One thing to notice is that the precise form of the baked bread is not a big deal. Uh, This is a little interesting that the Lord is not micromanaging in this way. Like it's, it's not a direction for your preferred form of bread. You can make it this way or that way or this other way. The issue is that however you make it, that it is brought to him, that it is acknowledged as his gift which we continue to do today, not by going to a central location, but by receiving our food with thanksgiving and with prayer, because we understand that it's all his gift. But he's, he's okay with a couple different forms of this, so long as it's unleavened. That, that is interesting, because it does seem like a strange... No, no leaven. You can't have leaven in it. And you're like, right. whoa, whoa, was there something evil in this leaven? But that's very helpful as you as you described. Anything else before we move on? Uh, no, not in this section. We'll we'll get through right. some things that are potentially pagan in the next section. Uh, wonderful. How how exciting is that? That's such a great precursor to get us ready for pagan ideas. Wonderful. Um, eleven through thirteen, we'll hear God's word. <laughs> No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, this is, you know, this is anybody who goes to McDonald's and gets some fries. They celebrate this command. Everything must have salt on it. But what is the, what's the purpose of salt? What is this for? Yeah. Uh, A lot of things are like this in Leviticus, where they're working on two different levels. If you look at other parts of scripture and find them referred to, So on a really basic or practical level, salt is a preservative. It's the opposite of leaven in this way. Whereas leaven eats up things and causes them eventually to decay or to ferment as what's called honey, but it's probably more just like fruit syrup, things that would come out crushed and probably sweet out of the fruits. That would cause decay. Salt preserves. 
Therefore, salt is also used throughout the Old Testament and in the Sermon on the Mount when we are called the salt of the earth. Salt is what preserves and also shows you that something is real or lasting because salt makes things to last and it does not change. It simply is what it is and is unaffected by other substances. So you'll get phrases such as the salt of the covenant, other places in the Old Testament to show you the seriousness of these things. So the phrase here, salt of the covenant of your God, indicates both that it's lasting, preserved, and that it is in earnest because it's gonna stay that way. It won't decay the way that things that have not honey, but again, like I said, fruit syrup or leaven inside of them will eventually rot. And that's a that's a great uh, thought for us is the idea of when it speaks about salt in the New Testament is that understanding of being preserved by the Lord that this salt had more meaning than just you have to have salt because it just tastes good. I mean, that's my right. <laughs> I'm getting kind of hungry this morning. I know I'm an hour ahead of you here, but I'm getting kind of hungry as I go through this today. But it's a great reminder for us of the need for salt in those days. And the reality of salt, even for our days, and the idea of preserving and this grain offering, showing how the Lord will provide. I mean, is that, am I on the right track on that? Yeah, because salt is something that we tend to think of as just flavoring, but it does mm-hmm. have this basic function of preservation, right? So when Jesus says, if it has lost its saltiness, he doesn't mean just that it doesn't taste as good as it would have tasted. He means that it has lost its characteristic of lasting. Mm. It's lost its characteristic of enduring, right? So that makes a little more sense when you think of it that way. If the salt isn't doing what it's supposed to do anymore, then it will be, in his words, cast out and trampled like anything else that won't survive the end of all things. But if we are salted, or the phrase that occurs in Luke's gospel, salted with fire, that is with trials and difficulties, then we will endure. Those are the very things that will cause us to endure. That is our salt. So salt is something that you'll see throughout the Old Testament, even when they renew the sacrifices after the return from exile. Ezra is Mm going to make sure that along with all the other things that they need, they're going to have lots of salt. Uh, And that is because everyone understands that salt is what makes something keep and last as God's covenant with his people does. We do have another question from our listeners, and uh, just make sure that I that I read this correctly. And if you need me to reread it, uh, let me know. But it's it's okay. this question, and it has to do with um, because they're making a connection with this grain offering and Cain from the Book of Genesis, which I think is a good connection for us to uh, think about. He says this. Is, our, is it our rituals, traditions, and practices that make our offerings acceptable to our Creator? Or is there a chance that, like Cain, our well-meaning offerings will be rejected like him? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, the difference between the sacrifices of Abel and Cain are that Abel does what God has done for his parents in the previous chapter in bringing an offering of life 
which has blood in it, without which there is no atonement or forgiveness. So just as God provided skins from dead animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, Abel understands that an offering of the life itself is more valuable than an offering of grain. So to say it, to say that in Leviticus terms, what's covered in Leviticus 1 or climactically in Leviticus 15, 16, those offerings of the life of one of God's creatures are far more valuable than the grain offering. Okay, which is why Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is rejected. That does not mean that the offering of the everyday things of grain or oil or things like that are bad necessarily. Everything is made to be received with thanksgiving and prayer, which always involves some kind of ritual, right? Uh, anytime we do, human beings do something more than once, something that you could call ritual or tradition enters into it. The question is, are my offerings, let's say I bring, like you said, Pastor Finner, I bring half my paycheck. Mm -hmm. Is that somehow more valuable than the sacrificial atonement of Christ? No, of course not. Would it be a good thing if I did that? Could it be useful to the Lord's work? Of course it could. So I think that you have to think of, Abel and Cain as, well, what is the relative value of the life and the blood compared to grain, right? But does that mean that the offering of grain in and of itself is bad? No. And that's a very hard distinction to make often. You know, we don't see it clearly. You do hear about it throughout the Bible with Cain and Abel, but it is a, is a great distinction that you just made when we talk about Faith. It's not about the amount. It's about the faith of one. What 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 a person gives. And I want to get to that at the end, where we see this. They give their grain offering, and you're like, okay, how much do they give? Okay, what's the equivalent to that in my life? You know, is this my is this my season tickets to the sports team? Is this you know is this my lake home? And talking Minnesotan in that sense. Is it is it you know talking about all these things? What's the equivalent to that? And it's probably asking the wrong question, which we will ask at the end of our time. So, uh, Dr. Coons, anything else from verses 11 through 13 you want to highlight? Yeah, just to note that in verse 11, the problem with leaven is that it would be a reminder that you're allowed to stick around during the Passover. So, some, so the reason that, that the bread is unleavened is because they're leaving in haste. So one thing to note is that even these more frequent or smaller or more common sacrifices made by the Lord's people are connected as reminders. They're connected by way of reminder through the exclusion of leaven to the ultimate salvation event of the Old Testament, which is the exodus that the Lord works mm -hmm. for his people, bringing them out of slavery. The pagan reminder would be what's, what's in our text as honey, which I, I've said is, I think, better translated as just the syrup that could come from any fruit. And mm. that is something that pagans around Israel and throughout the ancient world are going to use in sacrifice. So the Lord is being very specific not to allow what 
couldn't be there when he saved them in the Exodus, or what is there, honey, fruit syrup, in the sacrifices of pagans. He wants Israel's sacrifices, even their common ones, to be distinctive and to remind them ultimately of his salvation of them from slavery. And that's a great reminder for us as Christians in a pluralistic society is the question that I'm not going to try to answer today, but it's a question we have to ask is how do I make sure that I'm not, quote, mixing the honey and the fruit syrup into my daily practices um, that could be seen as, uh, you know, confusing at, at best and at worst, um, being going against what our Lord has given to us in Christ, and and I I do, I, I really hesitate to make a one to one because that goes more into soul care that your pastor and your church can help you through. But it is something for us always to consider because for me growing up, sometimes we try to make it way too simple. For example, my grandmother, a wonderful saint and, and believer in the Lord Jesus, she's one that grew up in the understanding as a Norwegian Pietist that you can't play cards with face cards. Because that would be, you know, <laughs> that would be something that would, you know, point you away from Jesus. And maybe there was a time that was true, but it's just something that's interesting. Whenever we try to make the rules too distinct, we, it gets very confusing and, and so forth. But it is a question we have to ask. Pastor, in yeah. about two minutes, uh, can, any, any thoughts you have on that particular thought that I had as you talk about honey? Yeah, be- and because the, the nature of the temptations to idolatry will change. That's why hard and fast rules can often become outdated, right? And need to be adjusted and discussed and discerned by the church. But the principle remains that I cannot live my life or offer to the Lord a life which is contaminated by idolatry that I unthinkingly commit just by imitating my unbelieving neighbors. And that's something for us always to pray about and to look once again to the scriptures. So, Dr. Kuntz, I really want to dig into some of the practical realities of pointing us to Jesus and also yeah. for us today. So can, can we finish out the rest of our verses and we ready to go? Yep, sounds good. Okay. 14 until the end of chapter 2. If you offer grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now, for those particular verses, it it feels like a repeating. But anything you want to highlight before we go into some more practical questions? Yeah, the only way in which it's not a total repeat of the first three verses of the chapter are the definition that a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord. So Mm. this has a specificity of time that is at the time of the grain harvest. So late spring, early summer in biblical Israel. And when that happens, here's how you do it. That also tells you that the first three verses of the chapter can cover an offering of raw grain at any time, which shows you, and if you look at when and how offerings are actually told in the text of the Bible, you'll see that grain offerings go with lots of other offerings, 
in addition to being brought at maybe specific times, such as the offering of the first fruits of the grain, especially around the time of Pentecost. So a few questions that really bring bring this, tie this all together, because I really appreciated your insights on this. And the first question is, okay, so we got, we got bread, um, we got uh, oil, we got all of this, we have some eating and drinking and so forth. How does that connect us to Jesus's eating and drinking? Yeah, Jesus's eating and drinking is with sinners, and he is happy to do it. And he also, therefore, understands that cleanliness uh, and the capacity to sit with one another and eat with one another doesn't come from, you know, following some specific set of rules, like you have to bake it this way, but it comes from a clean heart. So his disciples can eat with unwashed hands, not following all the rules that the Pharisees have because they are eating with thankful hearts. And that's really profound for Christianity because it makes us able to be Christians in any culture. I mean, the fact that we don't have extensive food laws is in the context of all the religions in the world, very unusual. Mm -hmm. Because the cleanliness comes from a heart which receives what the Lord has given with thanksgiving and with prayer, with acknowledgement of his, of his gifts, not from just following all the rules. And you can see, even as we said, with the different, if you want to bake it this way, if you want to bake it that way, that's okay, that the Lord himself was always concerned with the intention of the giver, acknowledging the gift, uh, acknowledging that this comes from the Lord, not with the specifics of, did you do it this way, and did you do it that way, and did you follow this checklist? And this connects to to us and and our world today. So you have the flour, you have the oil, you have the frankincense, you have um, uh, the salt and so forth to be brought to the Lord, literally in faith that the Lord will provide. What does that mean for us? What kind of gifts do we bring today? Because it is it's quite tricky. You're like, well, I got some flour in there. You know, what do I bring before the Lord? And what's the connection you yeah. make? How would you describe that? Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it means that. Everything that we do have comes as his gift, whether it comes directly from the land or by some other means. And so when I think about the gifts that I have, whether their money is what people usually think of, uh, giving money, how much money should I give? Or if they think of the talents that they have, uh, the things that they can do with or for other people to take care of their family, to love their neighbor. Understand that you can make the memorial portion of your life, of your money, of your talents, as big as you want. You can offer whatever you want. You can even offer everything. And you will find in that Blessing, just as you, the priest of the New Testament, you will find blessing and sustenance, just as the priests of the Old Testament found blessing and sustenance in the gifts that were given by Israel. So when you think about uh, gifts, understand that they're all gifts. <laughs> it all comes from him. And 
so then the question you have to ask yourself is not so much like, okay, well, how much, or do I offer flour, but how much do I get to offer? Because it would be such a joy, you know, in terms of Leviticus, such a joy. If I have so much grain, I bring twice as much as I did last year, or I bring five times as much, you know, there's no limit on this, on what can be offered with his blessing what can be offered to his work or for his people. There's no limit on this because he is so abundant in his gifts. And when you think about Old Testament Israel, you realize this because they receive a good harvest according to the Lord's blessing. So you will begin to realize the more gifts that you give, that all of it is a total gift. (laughs) Mm, And so you will just delight to give because he does. And you can see that in how Jesus is with people. He loves to multiply from even little gifts such as were brought to him to feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. It it brings me back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which speaks about generosity. And it always points us back to the Lord. It never leaves us with, okay, that's enough. Or, you know, okay, look at myself now. But for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And that's just, you, you put that together so well. Sometimes we try to put a limit, like, well, you don't want to give too much. Like, well, where, where is that? Where is that in the Bible? Don't give too much? Oh, come on now. Um, it doesn't say also give until it hurts. It doesn't say that in the Bible. That's just something we've kind of put together. But you connected it so well, Dr. Coons, to the blessing. That whatever we give, it is a blessing because it points us to showing that it is all gift from our Lord. Now, Dr. Kuntz, we have two minutes, mean, not even two minutes left in our time. Sure. I want to ask one more time, how does this connect to the Lord's Supper? It shows us that what's happening in the Lord's Supper is that the Lord takes elements raised by men, grain baked into bread and grapes crushed into wine. And he takes what men make, but he makes it a blessed meal in his presence. And that blessed meal in his presence, feasted on by his priests, by you, his church, that blessed meal in his presence is provided by his offering, his atonement offering of his body and his blood separated so that his life is shed for our life his life given up for the life of the world. So what happens is that the Lord's Supper connects us to that atonement offering on the cross in just the same way that the reason the priest can eat the meal from the grain offering in the presence of the Lord is precisely because that's where the Lord provides atonement and forgiveness that allows them to be near and with him so that they can live from the life that he offers, as we do when we eat the Lord's Supper. Dr. Adam Kuntz, Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology in Fort Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, giving us God's strong word from Leviticus chapter 2. Pastor Kuntz, thank you for the gifts. It was my pleasure. Saints of our Lord, everything is a gift from the Lord. The Lord gave that reminder to them in the grain offering, and he gives us that reminder for us today that as he has given us everything in the Lord Jesus, we give in faith back and we see the blessings that he gives, especially on the cross. 
What a joy to see this even in the book of Leviticus, because it is our time and the Lord continues to give. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us and may he keep you safe in the palm of his hands.